This is Take a Leaf with Green Writers Press. I'm Heather McCabe, and this week we're taking a leaf out of Vermont author John Elder's book, Picking Up the Flute, a memoir through music. Picking Up the Flute sets to music a former professor's musings on retirement, marriage, literature, and the natural world. From his home in historic Bristol, Vermont, to Ireland's Connemara Coast, travel through John Elder's exquisite topography and relish his explorations of nature, poetry, and geology. John Elder's memoir is permeated by music through his interwoven narrative of learning to play the Irish flute. Along the way, Elder also revisits his time teaching at Middlebury College and explores the next phase of retirement, utilizing texts and memories from his past whose meanings echo with new sound now. Picking Up the Flute is an interactive multimedia memoir that immerses the reader in Elder's provocative prose while offering the ability to listen to his spirited playing on his website. So hi, John. How are you? Hello. I'm good. And yourself? I'm well. So thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Um, so just to start off with, could you share with us a little bit about yourself and what you do and have done? Great. Well, I taught um, for 37 years at Middlebury College. I had a split appointment in English and Environmental Studies for much of that time. And at the end, was a called a college professor, which meant I could sort of rove around and teach what I wanted, which was quite nice. Um, when I retired in 2008, 2010, I retired, um, my wife Rita and I began to um, play Irish music. We had always been classical musicians. She as a pianist and I as a French horn player. But we decided to take up uh, a different musical tradition, the Irish traditional music, and new instruments. I started the wooden Irish flute, and she started playing the concertina. So it was really a beginner's mind. We were we were throwing ourselves into a new pursuit. Uh, we, we'd gone from being experienced classical musicians to being neophytes in Irish music. And we also didn't know much about Ireland. We don't have Irish heritage, and we, we hadn't traveled a lot in Ireland. But it became a fascinating way to learn more about Ireland, to meet uh, Irish people who have become very dear friends of ours, and to uh, play music all day. So it was a great thing. I began to – I'm a sort of a memoirist uh, journal writer. That's the base of my writing, and I was writing about our adventures. We often traveled to Ireland for extended periods uh, and realized that there was a, often an Irish traditional tune – that served as a sort of leitmotif for the themes of a given chapter. So I I set that up as a website where people could read my narratives and listen to the pertinent tunes, and then was approached by Dee Dee Cummings of Greenwriters Press, a press I admired at, after she started it, uh, about the possibility of it becoming a book. And so that's that's where this book came from. It's really about, just as you say, retirement and marriage, but it's also about uh, taking up something new uh, at a later chapter of your life. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us and also just having a kind of fascination with learning new things. Yeah. I think throughout reading the memoir, I was struck by how many new things you seem to pick up, whether <laughs> Japanese or maple sugaring or now the Irish flute. And I was wondering if you feel that just kind of throughout your life, you've always been someone who pursues a new skill, a new knowledge, or if it was something that came to you in moments. Well, you know, it's an interesting question, Heather. I, I think that it is characteristic of me to throw myself into new pursuits. I've sometimes said that um, there are two different personality types to which college teaching appeals. And one is people who just always want to be in the classroom learning new things, mm -hmm. always learning new things. 
and another is the desire to gain some expertise and 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 uh, participate in that kind of uh, advanced conversation. I'm definitely more the former. <laughs> I've always um, been doing things like studying Japanese while I was teaching at Middlebury and and um, um, moving into areas I don't know much about. I think all college teachers obviously have to have some of both. But my tendency is to want to uh, explore exciting new areas. So this is definitely part of that. Awesome. Then for listeners who might be unfamiliar with the idea of a wooden flute, could you give us kind of the basic anatomy as compared to maybe the traditional metal flute that most of us are familiar with? Yes. Well, the Irish flute is really a term that gets applied to what is essentially uh, the Baroque flute. In uh, the modern flute that people are familiar with, uh, silver flute, often called, has covered holes. Uh, and this was invented by a by a German um, musical uh, instrument maker named Böhm, Theobald Böhm, and um, uh, he he put on the cover holes because when the holes are just lined up with where people's fingers go, they're not quite in perfect tune. And so if you could put them in exactly the right place acoustically, even though you couldn't quite cover them with your fingers, you could have a little lever that would that would cover them and you could you could just um, position them perfectly from an acoustical sense. Uh, and that berm flute uh, has become the standard and it actually was is is related to the keying on on uh, oboes and some other instruments as well. So the the Irish flute is um, as we call it now is the Baroque flute, another word for it is the simple system flute. It has six holes on top and your fingers rest on the on the empty holes, the open holes. <clears throat> and then often uh, there are a few um, uh, chromatic keys that have been added, attached to little wooden blocks on the surface of the flute, and they open other holes um, if you want to get sharps and flats that weren't there in the key of your flute. So it is a, it is a wooden flute, uh, often a, of a black wood, although mine is of a brown wood. Uh, tropical woods are favored because they, they are... Um, very hard and dense, and they have a good, good acoustical effect. Um, boxwood flutes uh, are also played. I actually have a boxwood flute as well. Um, one other difference between the, the Irish flute and the classical flute is classical flutes are, are both uh, with covered holes and levers and keys and rods, but also they are cylindrical, the same diameter from end to end. Uh, Irish wooden flutes are conical. Uh, they're they're much wider or somewhat wider at the end where you blow into the flute. And as it goes down toward the right little finger, they they taper. And uh, conical instruments have a different overtone series. They're a little bit uh, – they have certain kinds of character and distinctness from range to range that's different from the classical instruments. Fabulous. I recall in the book you talk about the Irish flute as having a kind of textural sound. It does. That's right. It's a good way to put it, yeah. Yeah, I thought it was a really interesting note, whereas we think of kind of very clear, crisp sounds from the silver flute and kind of woodwinds in that family. Does the texture of the sound for you influence like the kind of story that the music is telling and that it might not be as perfect as one might want? <laughs> That's an excellent way to, like, excellent question. <laughs> You know, one way to talk about the evolution of wind instruments in, in classical orchestras is mm -hmm. with the French horn going to valves instead of your right hand making the note and, and shaping the tone in, in the bell, and with the keys coming on to all the wooden instruments, 
people were motivated to have a more consistent tone from top to bottom mm-hmm. and to have clarity. Um, and that's that's something that's that's valuable. Um, but what the older instruments, uh, the the simple flutes and the valveless French horn did, was to have different timbre. Every note has its own timbre, mm-hmm. and so you get color, all kinds of color and atmosphere that 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 comes in. And also, um, I find when you have your your fingers on the open holes of the flute, you can feel the air rushing under them when you're when you're, uh, your fingers are down. And it's very, it's very sensual, visceral. It's a wonderful thing. And to keep it in tune, since it's not in perfect tune, you're always having to 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 roll it forward or back. So it's a, uh, it, it's the physicality of it is much more marked, and the uh, the uh, that that sense of of um, a more organic sound. I mean, another thing to say about the Irish wooden flute is it sounds woody. It has a grainy character mm-hmm. that goes along with the little imperfections. Fabulous. Yeah. I think it's interesting that the kind of arc of musical progressions, like I grew up playing the saxophone and often people go to great lengths to make the saxophone sound more organic by playing it with like more of a funk edge or a jazz yes. edge, which is a kind of interesting arc from the kind of woody sound to the clarity. To oh, that's a, that's and of course the, the saxophone would have covered holes. Yes. Coming yeah. out of that berm flute uh, revolution. Uh, no, that's right. People are always trying to find ways to bring uh, a tone in and the saxophone's a, a good example. I mean, you, know, you, you can have a breathy sound. Mm-hmm. Some of the great jazz saxophones have this sort of chuff huff thing yeah. they want to do. And, uh, so it's it's a kind of a dialectic. We want instruments that are flexible and will do whatever we want. That's where the classical music has gone. But we also want something that feels particular, organic, emotional, mm-hmm. expressive. Absolutely. And when we're thinking about the kind of expressive nature of an instrument, I'm also thinking about the sense of place that an instrument itself can impart. Yes. And it seems that you often think of you know the history that's gone into an instrument when you're playing it. Yes. And I'm wondering if you can kind of address that. Well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, the instruments, Irish music is so interesting. Again, mm-hmm. we, we've just thrown ourselves into it, but we didn't know a lot about it. We were classically oriented, as, I, as I've already said. But one of the things about Irish music is it's basically a melodic tradition. There are sometimes um, people who play, a, a, you know, guitars or other things behind a piano to, to give a chordal background. But the classic Irish session is a diverse group of, of uh, instruments playing the same tune in unison. That's, that's what they do. And, and it, it gets a little extra texture by the different timbre of the different instruments plus ornaments, which are, which are, uh, uh, conventional in Irish music. But, uh, when you think about the instruments, the first instrument was probably the, the penny whistle, and then the fiddle's been there a long time. But for instance, the Ireland was a very poor country for much of the 18th and 19th centuries, extremely poor. Of course, in the middle of the 19th century was the Great Hunger. And uh, when uh, berm flutes came in, all of the orchestras of Europe had been using essentially what we now call Irish flutes. Nobody wanted them anymore. Mm. So they put them in barrels. And they sent them to Ireland because the Irish were very musical, but they were very poor. Mm-hmm. And they could buy these things for pennies, these wooden flutes, because nobody else wanted them anymore. Mm-hmm. So they, they bought the wooden flutes. And then some people took off. And they often had a few chromatic uh, keys on them. Um, 
I was going to get the flute and show it to you, but that I want to stand, walk away from the. I'll keep imagining it as we talk. But but um, they they have often say six little metal keys, external keys, opening mm-hmm. up chromatic holes, and um, some people just took those all off and put corks in the holes that went with them because the six open uh, holes are just like a penny whistle. So you just blow across instead of into the end of your penny, penny whistle, which is very common already. Other people left the keys on and fiddled around with them, you know, mm-hmm. to get a little more flexibility. But so the, 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 the flute came into this tradition about the time that, that, uh, everybody in Europe was giving up on these flutes because the Irish wanted instruments. They, they had a rich music, but they didn't have any money. So it was good. Similarly, the concertina, which, which Rita plays had been a very popular working person's instrument in England for taking to beach and so forth. And when they lost favor, they sent them over to Ireland too. And the Irish picked those up. So, yeah. so a typical Irish session would include often a penny whistle, a fiddle, flute, concertina, often a button accordion, um, and uh, and then ill on pipes. Those are the those are the biggies. And then there's some others that come in too: tenor banjo, sometimes mm-hmm. the little hand drum called the bowron, uh, sometimes the harmonica. But basically, you're all playing along in unison in these different sounds. It's, it's fascinating. But the one the one other thing I wanted to say about the history, you know, the background. There's a history in terms of where they entered into the tradition. But one of the things that strikes me about Irish music is Many of the tunes are in dance meters, like jigs and reels, sure. or pipes. But the the uh, the character is often either in a minor key or in a modal key. So you've got this dark, shadowy harmonic feeling mm-hmm. and this jig tempo, say. And for me, what it conveys is this the indomitable Irish spirit. Uh, you know, especially in the nineteenth century when when starvation was endemic which is, we're not dead yet. That's what the music says to me. We're not dead yet. You know, we've got this driving rhythm, mm-hmm. but we're not totally cheerful either. Because it's, it's an eloquent expression of, of Irish history, I think. Absolutely. If you wanted to grab the flute, you, you can. Well, All right. just, because showing it to you might um, prompt some questions. <laughs> Yeah, I, and I'm very excited to see it. Yeah, it's a beautiful instrument. My little brother plays just the silver flute. The silver flute? Yeah, it's going to be fun to see the difference. Yeah, it's, it's quite distinctive. Yeah. Say, well, this, I didn't realize it would be in parts. It's in parts, yeah. They're all in parts. Mm-hmm. Because um, when you're, in the first place, when you're doing a lathe, and the, it's not just that the, that the exterior, you can see the conical nature of it. Mm-hmm. It's a tuning slide, so you can see how much yeah. narrower that's just than that. Uh, but to do a conical bore, because so, the whole bore is continuously mm-hmm. tapered too, you really have to have a smaller uh, section. Yeah. And also, if you're using um, hardwoods or boxwoods, you, you don't have a piece this long that's suitable. You know, that's really yeah. top grade. So you you work with little pieces like this. Mm-hmm. Put them all together. Yeah. So that's the so these are the the, the six open holes. These were left over from some of the early. These are just resonance holes. You don't finger those. Okay. And then, and then these little keys open up holes that uh, give you chromatic options, so you can play in a key. Very cool. Yeah, is that cool? Yeah. So it's 
got these open holes, but then it also has these like silver ornaments that. Yeah, they're like ornaments. That's right. You see, they they have little blocks that when they were making the flute with the blade with the lathe, they left those, and then they mounted these on them with simple little springs. It's really beautiful. So some people would plug those with cork. When they first, this is a, a modern instrument, yeah. so it was made this way. But when they arrived, you know, in the barrels mm -hmm. on the docks there, um, these holes. Uh, they, they took off the keys. Often people did that. Mm -hmm. And they put corks in here so they could play it like a big penny whistle. Yeah. And other people left them so they could say, oh, I wonder what that does. I, <laughs> I see. I get to get an F natural there. That's kind of cool. So Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. At one point in the memoir, you write about, I think you're listening to an iPad recording yeah. of um, a teacher. And they've kind of thrown in some extra texture or motions in the notes that you're trying to capture. And I'm wondering if that is just like completely different from the classical music you had played before, like learning by ear and trying to kind of replicate by ear as well. That is one of the biggest uh, features of traditional, I think most traditional music I know, but certainly of Irish traditional music. Um, Rita and I, uh, from early on, did classical music, and, and we did it uh, right up till the time we retired and, and loved it. So we would look at a piece of sheet music and we could hear it. You know, mm -hmm. it's very easy to, to, to hear it just from the notes on the text. Um, today, many traditional Irish musicians um, read music, but many don't. And, and even the ones who do read it often um, uh, have a kind of uh, derogatory uh, way of speaking about it. They call sheet music the dots. <laughs> Say, well, I've got the dot. You want the dots for that? And what that suggests to me, it's wonderful, saturnine, you know, Irish wit. What it suggests is, well, it's a bunch of little marks on a paper, but it doesn't have the music that does it. You know, that, that's what it suggests. Yeah. You know? And uh, so in, in traditional music, Irish music, if you go to a, a workshop or a class or work with a teacher, she will teach you music, teach you a tune phrase by phrase, repeat, 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 until you get the whole thing together. And then you go off and practice it yourself. And the two things about it is hard. If you're older and if you're used to reading sheet music, it's really hard. It really is a workout for your brain. But the, the two advantages of it, one is if you learn it by ear, you definitely remember it better. It goes into a different part of your brain. There's no, yeah. no doubt about it. And the second thing is if, you, if you're never sort of focused on the page, if it's all through ear, you get the shape, you get the character, uh, and you get the, li the lilt. I mean, the, the Irish are very interested in having the rhythm. I think the rhythm is the supreme element of Irish music. They want it always to be right. And for instance, in a jig, it's not, you know, as you know, in a jig, it's uh, six, eight times. So dot, 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 dot. But that wouldn't cut it in Irish music because they always, they have their lilt, their lift. So a, a jig is always and a real similarly and so the first note of a triplet the first note of four really has to be given extra weight or people just don't like it at all it sounds mechanical in part because it's for dance so you're, you're swinging you know you're swinging into the end of the dance so that's one of the things that um, teachers convey uh, in this very rich tradition another thing is with flute um Especially if you have the the chromatic flute, you can you can um, hear each note start with the keys. You can 
you hear that. Mm-hmm. But also with the flute, like any wind instrument, a classical instrument, you tongue. So you can go ta 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 or faster ta 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 You can do that. But in, in Irish flute playing, they don't like to do that mm-hmm. because they're thinking about the pipes, the Ellen pipes, the grand Irish pipes. Mm-hmm. And, and in Ellen pipes, which are bellows pipes, they um, it's a continuous stream of air. There's nothing. Okay. There's nothing to tongue it and separate yeah. it, break it like that, as you know. You know, from playing the saxophone, and so the only way pipes can break notes, many notes, is to have ornaments like a, they they uh, they have a cut or a or a tap or a, a thing called a roll, which is a, a kind of a four part da 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 that we cut it ta 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 ta, and so um, they do it with their fingers. And instead of going ta to start a note, they go ha. Huh. They're really they're really entering into the world of pipes. So they're not imitating classical woodwinds. They're yeah. imitating a bagpipe, which has been a crucial element of uh, Irish style. And that's one thing you learn from your teachers. You know, you're because as say a French player, I was very you know confident about about articulation, as they call it, tonguing. Mm. No tonguing. They call it what they call Starting like a ha huh, is throating, mm. throat. and uh, and it makes a different sound, very different, and it's again it's very expressive. Like the tone of the instrument itself, it's very uh, emotional. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting to think that even when you're playing it, you're kind of speaking into the history and the development of the music. You are, you are, and the and the tunes are like that too. Mm-hmm. You know the. Uh, Many of the titles, I mean, Irish music has strange titles, and, and many, many times they seem, you know, unaccountable. But, 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 but many of the titles do refer to the, I mean, really Irish music is, has flourished since the 17th century and into the 20th century. It's an international movement now. America is a very important part of yeah. Irish music. But many of the tunes speak to the history of Ireland, like Banish Misfortune. That goes. That's my sense of the, you know, the the defiance. You know, we're we're not dead yet. Or um, there's a well-known tune called the Battering Ram. With in the right before the um, the Great Migrations, uh, nobody could pay their their um, rent, and so the landlords would come around to evict the farmers from their little stone cottages at Connemara, and they'd bring a guy with them who had a, a big battering ram on a he could swing on chains, and they go up to a cottage and knock the door off its hinges, mm-hmm. and then uh, with the people. So it's this is this image of brutality and dispossession and the battering ram. So so on that level too, the history comes in. Absolutely. When you think of the songs that are kind of conjuring images and recollections like that, do you personally have songs that speak to like Bristol, Vermont, or like when you began playing music to now? Like, do you create associations like that? In your oh, life? oh, definitely. Well, you know, in terms of the book, the the tunes that are the light motifs for every chapter mm-hmm. always have very particular associations. You know, um, when we went to. Um, uh, County Kerry. We mostly were up in the northwest around uh, Connemara, but, but a, a friend, an Irish friend, gave us the use of his little cottage, vacation cottage down in Kerry near the town of Derrynane, which is where uh, Daniel O'Connell, the liberator, came from. So there's a tune called uh, O'Connell's Trip to Parliament. So I I got there. I'd never been to, to uh, O'Connell's place before, and that was part of my association. But, but here on the Irish uh, flute in, in – uh, in Bristol, Vermont, I, for instance, we 
we have a sugaring operation. Okay. Our family makes maple syrup. And um, sugaring season in, in late March is also the the, the uh, mating season for the barred owl, which is one of our prominent Vermont owls. Mm-hmm. And so when you're in the woods making syrup, the barred owls are hooting. So I have a tune called the barred owl, which is an association with spring in Vermont. It's beautiful. Um, so then, uh, kind of getting a little bit more back to the book, um, I noticed that a lot of the book kind of explores dualities between Vermont and Ireland yeah. that might not be immediately apparent. My favorite section, I think, maybe in the entire book, is when you're talking about the bedrock similarities. Oh, yeah. I think that's so fascinating, and I'm just wondering how you even came to make that connection. You know, I, I'm glad you asked that question because it goes in so many directions. Um, I do find a lot of parallels between Vermont and um, and Ireland. They're both very green, mm-hmm. and they both have very strong cultures. Uh, I think there's a strong orientation toward the landscape in both. And, in of course, Vermont's really part of the northern extension of the Appalachians, and we have a lot of traditional music here, drawing on, on both Appalachian music and Irish music, Scottish music, and so forth. So there are many, many parallels. Um, and, of course, going back and forth for, for the first five years after retirement, I'd say we spent about half our time in Ireland, and we got very, very connected with a, a couple of little uh, communities in Ireland, Roundstone, Connemara, and then Kinvara. Um, on Galway Bay, where the the people in the communities were so appealing to us, but so I was pleased to find out um, in talking with a friend of mine at, at Middlebury College, where I used to teach, that the geology, in addition to the culture, um, and the fact that both both Vermont and and Western Ireland were depopulated in the middle of the nineteenth century, um, one by famine and the other by the Civil War, basically, uh, and the and the aftermath. But beyond that, they have the same geology because when the continental plates were, you know, colliding and withdrawing over the hundreds of millions of years, at one point, um, the, um, the land that is now Western Ireland, a part of a plate that was Western Ireland, uh, was, uh, is now, that when they separated, that went traveled East with Ireland and uh, and up into the northern Scandinavian countries, but parts of it remained attached to Canada and northern New England. So if you draw a line uh, down through Connemara, and then you and you go across and you draw the same line down through Newfoundland and all the way down through Maine into Vermont, it's the same bedrock. It's it's not only the same minerals; it's the same order of deposition. It's the same bedrock. I mean, Newfoundland and Ireland are absolutely identical. And when you get down to Vermont, it's very close. It's such a close family resemblance. So it's, a, it's for me, a, a really powerful way of saying these places that, from one perspective, they're on other, they're on the opposite sides of an ocean, they're in different countries, you know, the, uh, there are lots of different historical connections. But at a deep level, they're the same, and the same tunes and, and ways of playing. I mean, the Appalachian music is like the bedrock, um, it it shows its Celtic roots, even though it's found its own character. And we show our roots in the, you know, if you if you walk right up uh, through the Northeast Kingdom and keep going northeast up into Canada, 
in a way, you're walking to Konamara. So it's it's powerful. It's a wonderful connection. Yeah, I had never thought to consider the geology of a place when experiencing its history. Yeah. So I think often we think about like the social and cultural history right. and try to draw connections across cultures that way. And then to think that, you know, at one point we were, were all on a massive landmass. That's right. And the, and the landmasses come together. And then when they separate, parts of one will go with the other. Yeah. yeah. And, and it's not just a kind of general coincidence. It's a, I mean, a bedrock sequence is like a thumbprint. It shows kinship. Absolutely. And, so, and, then, and of course, geology in Vermont, you know, um, uh, accounts for so much. I was just doing this sort of natural history walk at Breadloaf today. Breadloaf, Ripton, was all farmed. The early settlers in Vermont came in here after the revolution, and, and they, they chose the high ground for more sun. They they broke their hearts pulling out big trees with the help of oxen and horses. And within a generation, most of them were gone because the, glaci the glaciation had scalped the topsoil. And so you've got these these worlds are right behind us here on, on, on um, the Hogback Ridge. You, you've got uh, resistant bedrock, quartzite around here often, quartzite and granite. Mm -hmm. And then where it was softer, that gets peeled away and goes down to the Champlain Valley and forms clays and makes yeah. good farming. And up here, it's just not good farming. No. And, and similarly, with, if you travel around, have you been in Conamara when you were in Ireland? I don't think so. Yeah. So it, it's so much like Vermont. It's so green. It's very rocky. Mm. Um, and it was heavily farmed, but it would be a hard place to make a living as a farmer. Yeah. yeah, a lot of dairying there because Ireland's mm. very good for dairying and has wonderful dairy products, milk and cheese. And but but um, they're both marginal landscapes, agriculturally mm -hmm. speaking. Connemara and and Vermont. Yeah, and yet both places that have really rich agricultural history. <laughs> yes, they do. Yeah. They do. But at this point, in the interior of England, of Ireland, like County Meath, mm -hmm. or in the interior of America, you have. Much deeper soil and much bigger. I mean, Ireland's full of farms, but not not Connemara. <laughs> Little one here and there, like Vermont. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, where I want to go next, I think the way you talk about the past in relation to the future is very interesting in the memoir because you're writing about a kind of ancient history of place and music that's got a really wonderful kind of rich texture, but you're also imparting a kind of sense of futurity into the memoir, mm. talking about the environmental future yes. of our planet and then how that will impact ourselves. And I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on that. I love the image of you in the um, maple sugar tree. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Wearing my, my tree costume. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, um, one of the chapters, as you, as you know, um, I explore the environmental and cultural rift in Vermont and in Ireland over uh, large-scale renewable energy projects mm -hmm. because um, Vermont, much of Vermont and much of Connemara, feels like a, a, a vestige of the past. It feels rural and pastoral, Arcadian even, and old-fashioned, 19th century. Those are all things, ways it feels to people who come here for the first time, mm -hmm. even though it has been um, uh, industrial. That's not as immediately evident. And, um, and so there, there's a lot of environmental consciousness in Vermont and Ireland, a very important part of the culture. On the other hand, 
if you're trying to replace fossil fuels with renewable energy, mm-hmm. you inevitably are working at large scale because it takes a lot of wind or a lot of sun to replace a cubic meter of petroleum. You know, so you're not going to be able to do it invisibly. Mm-hmm. And so you're going to have large solar arrays. You're going to have, uh, uh, you know, industrial scale wind mm-hmm. wind towers. And uh, so I have I have a chapter exploring that, as you know, um, in that we have a little camp up in the Northeast Kingdom where there's been a, a lot of controversy about the Lowell Wind Project. Yeah. And um, and I can see both sides of it. I mean, I come down on one side. Um, which is to say I, I believe that climate change is affecting everything and we have to we have to really try to get serious about changing away from fossil fuels. Yes. Uh, which is why we have a fossil fuel free house. You know, that's our yeah. that's all we well we've done this in our retirement. But so I really feel that very strongly and the you know, the the changing climate of Vermont in terms of temperature and where the rain happens and so forth is I mean, it's so obviously a big problem. On the other hand, I really appreciate the feelings of my many friends who say, mm-hmm. I just can't abide industrial scale technology coming into this bucolic old fashioned place. Yeah. So this, this is a very emotional collision and I understand it. And so it's why in the one chapter where I talk about such things, I go for a hike with a friend of mine who reaches the opposite conclusion just to, you know, to walk around a part of Vermont we both love. But, um, that that's one of the interesting connections that in both Vermont and in in um, in Ireland, the environmental community is riven by disagreement about what comes next. We're struggling the same way. Yeah, we're struggling again against so many things. I think in part because of the rich history that each community is trying to preserve. That's a good point. And in the way that music kind of carries that history of a community. I'm wondering about the kind of familial connection I think that a lot of people feel to music. And I'm wondering if in entering into traditional Irish music, you feel that like you and Rita have found a new familial connection, whether with each other, with Irish community at large. Your questions are so thoughtful. Certainly for us, I mean, in our marriage, we've been married 48 years, you know, so we have a long history together. But, But for the last 10 years or so, We've played a lot of Irish music together, and it's uh, and we've had the time to play. Often we played, you know, morning, noon, and night. You know, it's been great, and we've traveled together in connection with the music, and so it's definitely um, been a context for this chapter of our marriage. That's for sure. We came to it too late for our kids to grow up with us doing this in the household, so they're you know it's not their musical tradition. <laughs> the other thing is through through the music which took us over there, we became introduced to a community of uh, musicians, writers, scientists, conservationists, artists uh, who who lived in, in the same way that Vermont is such a magnet for such people. So is Western Ireland, County Galway, which goes, which includes Connemara and County Clare. <laughs> and so we met people there who really have become dear friends through the music. So that's kind of a, you know, lifelong friends are kind of a familial thing. And those two paper mache rooks were sent to us by an Irish friend of ours who's an artist who loves rooks. Their 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 feet, bills, and that little egg are showing the Irish times. And and uh, so we, we have some real connections. We look at those and we think of our friends over there. Um, 
And um, But then many of our friends in Ireland that we met, these people we've talked about, I just talked about in, in the communities of Brownstone and Kinvara especially, are extremely uh, proud of their Irish heritage. And they're typically, um, uh, you know, they, they name their kids with traditional Irish spellings, you know, mm-hmm. and, they, and they're, they either grew up with some Irish or they've been learning Irish as, as adults, which is what they call Gaelic, not they call it Irish. <laughs> and, um, and so they're, they're really devoted to it. And so they were pleased by our interest in Irish music because it, it relates to their pride in, in their national, um, identity. Um, and, you know, the, I would say many of the best traditional Irish musicians grew up with parents and grandparents playing. So they just, mm-hmm. this business about learning by ear, they learned by ear, but they didn't even know they were learning by ear because they knew it by the time they were eight. You know, yeah. They knew all the, they knew all the, all the tunes and they knew mm-hmm. the tradition. They knew how the tunes are really supposed to sound. So we're, we have the, we have a, an angle on that familial reality but but for the people who really soaked in that tradition it's it's their whole culture it's the, it's inseparable from their families the, i've been to i've been to four places in the world where i thought the music permeated everything and the and the highest quality music were almost was was almost evident in everybody you met one was um western ireland one is new orleans mm-hmm. with jazz one is um uh the appalachians around Asheville, and the other is cape breton and in, in, in those four places, one city and, and three more rural places, um, you, you just you just have the feeling that there is a relationship to music that has to almost be inherited. It has to almost be in your mm-hmm. bones. You know, we, we come to it as lovers of the tradition. But if you grow up and you're the four year old, you know, uh, sleeping behind the sofa while while Granny and you know, great uncle Fred are playing. Yeah. You, have, you have a different tradition. You're not thinking about learning it at all. Mm-mm. You can't remember ever having known it. Absolutely. Thank yeah. you so much. Oh, you're welcome. Um, so I think we're getting ready to wrap up, but if you have any final thoughts or things you want to make sure you say. Well, yeah, one thing I would say is, I mean, your questions have been so thoughtful. I'm, I'm pleased to have gone where we went in this conversation, but, one thing, maybe just to underline, is I love Irish music and I played it a lot, and and I'm very interested in it. But I'm very aware of this as being a beginner's book, mm-hmm. and my recordings are not um, an expert's recordings. Yeah. They're just where a pretty you know serious amateur has gotten so far. Yeah, you know, <laughs> and uh, and so I like that. And what so I would say my book is not primarily about Irish music because I don't know enough to write a book about Irish music. Yeah. My book is about beginning to discover Irish music. That's really my topic. Absolutely. And, and about beginning to do that um, toward the end of my life. So it's uh, I have a lot of experience behind it, and I don't think I'll ever arrive at expertise in Irish music, So which is great for me. I won't, mm-hmm. I won't run out of Irish music. Absolutely. Yeah. I was pleasantly surprised when I picked up the book to realize that it wasn't just a book about Irish music. Oh, no. Because... <laughs> I think in my own reading life, I am most interested in books that manage to connect seemingly disparate things and yeah. bring them together. Yeah. And I think you do that beautifully, well, and thank, I thank thoroughly you, enjoyed it. Oh, I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's, a, yeah. it's an essay in the sense of, oh, yeah. let's try this out. Let's see where it goes. I mean, my, my favorite, everybody's favorite is Montaigne for the way he does that. Mm-hmm. And um, and I would say also learning things, this is back to another of your questions, it's a joy to learn things. 
Yeah. And and that and but learning them in that point where they're coming so fast when you're a beginner you learn so fast, but you never you know you, you've never reached a place of accomplishment. <laughs> but it's just every day you're learning something. It's a it's an exciting thing and it's a mode of being alive to be a beginner that I really appreciate. I li- I like it. Well, that's fabulous. I'm going to carry that with me. The idea of being a beginner is a mode of being alive. And yeah. It's wonderful. I hope to be a beginner for the rest of my that's life. That's the way. Yeah. You know, there's a phrase that I mentioned it earlier from a Zen teacher named uh, Shunri Suzuki. He wrote a book called Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. Mm-hmm. And in it, he says, um, in the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities. In the experts, there are few. And, and so beginner's mind has sort of gone into the into the vocabulary as a way of saying, Wow, I'm just learning so much. This, who knows where this will go? It's kind of a, um, a state of wonder. We are incredibly grateful to our guest, John Elder. You can be found at johnelderauthor.com. That's J-O-H-N-E-L-D-E-R-A-U-T-H-O-R.com. The music discussed in this episode can also be heard on his website. Picking Up the Flute is out now through Midpoint Distribution and is available for sale on IndieBound or through your local independent bookstore. Take a Leaf is a project of Green Writers Press, giving voice to writers and artists who will make the world a better place. This episode was recorded and produced by me, Heather McCabe. Music was used courtesy of the Free Music Archive and John Elder. You can visit us online at takealeaf.org or on Twitter at leafpodcast. You can contact Green Writers Press on Twitter at greenwriterspub. Wishing you the best from Brattleboro, Vermont, and Gambier, Ohio. This has been Take a Leaf.